princess and a witch and a forest and a castle. Uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing, tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People podcast. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Wonderful People podcast with Dan Mordub and Phil Jones. I feel like in that pause, there should be like a round of applause or something. So if you're listening to this in the car or wherever you're listening to this, just give, give us and yourself a round of applause just to get in here and continue in. Phil's laughing at that because he knows about the interview about to come up. Um, <laughs> Mr. Phil Jones. Now, for, that, for those of you that listen to the podcast, you, you know, many of you will know Phil's incredible career. He's the influence he has over the industry, including being Creative Pool Influencer of the Year, People's Choice. What a great accolade. Um, but actually, during lockdown, Phil, you've become a, a little bit of a, I, I don't want to be rude, but a little bit of a saddo. You know, you kind of you kind of wait for the Ocado van to arrive and you even send me texts and messages with who's turned up, like Anton the Onion and all yeah. sorts of things that us people from Maystone don't really understand about. But also <laughs> you've had other passions in lockdown as well. So tell us what else you've been doing. What else has given you a tickle in lockdown? Well, you're not the only one who thinks I'm a sad dog. My wife, Babs, she thought the same. And she said, Come on, let's, <laughs> let's find something on the telly that will just make us laugh and have a good time. So we've been going through Netflix and we have been watching Shit's Creek. <laughs> it is for anyone who has not seen it. It is absolutely hilarious. And they're all short cuts as well. So you, you know, you're, you're finishing one, you're going straight into the other one. The acting's amazing. The humour is brilliant, and I recommend it to my massive array of fans out there. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Okay, well, there we go. You heard it here first. That's what else Phil Jones has been doing in lockdown other than waiting for the Ocado van. So, Phil, who have we got on today? Well, today I've actually known this speaker for probably 30 years. They say a picture speaks a thousand words, but if you ask today's guest without words, it's all meaningless. I'm delighted to welcome another of Manchester's finest, award-winning writer and strategist, Mr. Patrick Bagley, or Paddy, as we used to call him. With an incredible 30-year career, working as a creative in the not-for-profit, public and private sectors for brands like Scope, Diesel, Barclays and Tesco, and an award-winning GF Smith campaign, he's established himself as a well-known, much-loved and respected personality in the creative industry. Today, we're going to find out about his career on both sides of the pond, what makes him twitch, more of that later, and most important of all, what kind of mantelpiece is required to house a full array of DNAD pencils. Over to you. Welcome, Patrick. Uh, thank you, Dan. It's very, very nice to be here. Nice to see you both. Nice to see you, Phil. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very much looking forward to it. But the first question, Patrick, as we always kick off with these, the very, very deep and meaningful question. You know, if you were stuck in a lift with someone, anyone you wanted, who would it be and why? It is, uh, it's really interesting you asked me that question because I was stuck in a lift on New Year's Day last year um, in California and... 
The question you've just asked me was not the one I was asking myself at the time. <laughs> I was asking some, some fairly significant existential questions, to be honest. And I've got, uh, I've got two answers, and they're perhaps not as light as you might have hoped, but my first choice would have been uh, Anita, my wife, because she'd have made the situation a whole lot more bearable uh, because I'd have been freaking out and she wouldn't have been. Um, and the second, uh, actually, uh, sorry to go serious so, so quickly, but I think it would have been my dad because it's funny how as you, as you go through life, you leave home, you go to university, you, you play your own furrow and, you know, the connections you have with your, with your family start to become more and more fleeting. And uh, I sort of wish I'd had more opportunities to just sit and talk with him. There's quite a few questions I never really got to ask him. So, yeah. Uh, in some ways, I won't apologise for going deep early because uh, genuinely, I think that's who I would love to have been uh, in the lift with. Uh, but yeah, when when it actually happened last New Year's Day, I thought, well, this is it. Luckily, I had a sandwich, so I <laughs> so I knew I had a good a good forty five minutes. <laughs> a great answer, brilliant, brilliant answer, and no, very yeah. good. Very good. And you mentioned you mentioned sort of university and and you know making your own you know furrow in life. And the course you did at MMU, let's go back, let's go back, you know, a few years, shall we say, was design yeah. and learning. Now that's like an interesting course. Where did most people end up, you know, coming out of that course and ended up doing? Because that was quite formative in a lot of people's careers, I feel. Yeah, design for learning. Um, I mean, the truth of it was, I, I didn't feel I left um Uh, college with a strong enough graphic portfolio you know I was interested in typography and I was interested in trying to you know put type and image together but I I wasn't really that strong and this course designed for learning I think there'd only been two years of graduates from the course it was it was almost brand new and quite untested in some ways Um, and so the, the the great thing about the course actually on reflection was it combined writing, uh, design, an understanding of how people learn and received information. Um, it was a really fascinating principle. Also, they used multimedia, such as it was in those days, which was kind of having three slide projectors working in tandem. That was about as complex as it, as it got in those days. Um, and, you know, I just thought, well, that looks really interesting. And I, I didn't feel I could stack up against some of the other graphic designers. And what tended to happen is, you know, every year thousands of graphic designers would emerge from university or polytechnic, but 12 design for learners would would come out. And that was either fantastic because you were completely different to everyone else or nobody knew what it was that you could do. And so a lot of the people that qualified went into things like interpretive design for museums um, they went into publishing or into multimedia because, you know, the, the course gave you a good grounding across a very wide spectrum. And, you know, you were either really intriguing and exotic or completely unemployable because there was no precedent. Everyone knew what a graphic designer could do for their business. But very few people, I think, at that point understood what someone who was qualified in design for learning would add in terms of of value so you know we all emerged kind of blinking into the light and wondering uh you know where where we would end up so yeah that generally it was people who were employed to make things clearer i suppose that's probably the best summation museums organizations that needed to communicate clearly uh, and publishers who wanted to 
make more interesting uh, books and media about the things that they communicated. So yeah, it was, it was a, a fascinating course and a challenge when we finally got to leave and, uh, and look for our first professional employment. Yeah. So you ended up with the writing part of that course that made you think about doing your own magazine at the university. Yeah, I mean, I'd always been, I'd always been uh, interested in writing. I remember my parents bought me a, a typewriter, one of those that sort of came in an attaché case, so you could sort of take it wherever you went with you. Um, and I'd always been interested in, in writing. The course allowed me to continue to do that. And um, when uh, all of us left university, I, I wound up in Norwich, actually, um, in what I thought was the best job uh, I could have possibly uh, got, which was working for the National Park of the, uh, of the Broads. So that meant I was using the qualification I had, but also in what is essentially the best place in the United Kingdom to go birdwatching, which, as you know, Phil, is, has been my hobby since I was a boy. So I thought this, I was in seventh heaven. Um, but uh, one critical uh, factor in me not making the most of it was that I actually couldn't drive. So I was in Norwich, unable to get to any of the fantastic, you know, nature reserves and uh, different environments in East Anglia. And also, I think I just, um, I got a job very quickly. I didn't really take a moment to think, okay, so what is, what is the job that's going to make me, you know, really happy that's going to get the best out of me. So I lasted six months, went back to Manchester with my tail between my legs. And then an opportunity came up down in London. And um, I, I was rooming with a couple of the, the guys I'd known at Manchester Poly, a couple of photographers actually. And, um, there were a few of us down there at that time. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had something to sort of glue us together again, um, as opposed to was all being in the city, but never connecting. And this is of course, way before social media was uh, even a glint in anyone's eye. So Arnos, which was so named um, because of the tube station, I think it's on the Piccadilly line, but there was no real deep thought beyond that was really just a very, um, I did it on a photocopier at the job I'd got in London. It was silly, daft stories about all the people from Manchester that were there. We'd get together and I'd hand out, you know, sheets of A3 or eventually I started to use staples when things really, really got sophisticated. Um, but it just, you know, it, it, it kept us talking to each other. It was a good excuse to meet up. Um, doubtless, much of the material in there is, is highly defamatory when I look back on it now, but you know, it, it would wind up in interesting places. So I had a friend who worked at the face and he would take copies into there and people would grab it off his desk. I used to send copies to you, Phil. Um, and amazingly you would always write back and say, thanks for the new copy of uh, Arnos as ever. It got stolen by one of my, I think it was Tom Davidson who used to steal it off your desk. Um, but it was, it was, you know, it was a nice way to connect people. But as it turned out, also an interesting way of just putting my writing, however silly it was, in front of some quite interesting, and as it turned out, extremely useful people. So, yeah, I, I loved doing it. It was just, it was silly, it was daft, only six issues in the end. Um, but yeah, it, 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 was, it was a nice thing to do and didn't take much time, but turned out to be really important in terms of my sort of long-term 
career, I guess. I know you, um, you're a Carlisle United fan. <laughs> so, I mean, so four of you must be very excited. <laughs> so it's the last of a dying breed, I believe. But also, just moving off that point a little bit, you've moved around a lot. Your career has been in you know, several countries, in fact, not just locations. But I know you ended up in Manchester early on. So you've mentioned London, back up to Manchester. Um, how did that all come about? So being a Carlisle United fan, um, I, I get very nervous around silverware because I'm, I'm not used to it. <laughs> I don't, I don't recognise it. Um, yeah, so uh, Carlisle. Um, my dad was a compositor and he did his compositor's work course at Carlisle College of Art. And, um, you know, by, by all accounts, he was very good and... Um, he was an apprentice at a printer's in the town where he was uh, brought up, which is Penrith, uh, which is the north part of the Lake District. And when he and my mum got married, she worked at the solicitors in the town. Um, you know, dad was uh, quite ambitious and, and I think realised that, you know, Penrith wasn't necessarily going to be the place where he would advance in his career um, with any, any real speed. And so um, mum and dad moved to Sunderland and they lived in a tied house, a house that was essentially associated with the printing company that he, he worked at. Um, but again, you know, he was, he was looking for sort of bigger and better things, I think. And so when I was due, uh, mum and dad moved to Carlisle. Uh, they lived on Petrol Street, which is not far from Brunton Park. And... Um, I think I was born four weeks after they arrived in, in Carlisle. So my dad was working at a printing company there. They, they had some extraordinary clients. They used to do the setting for Oz magazine, which was a counterculture magazine back in the 60s. And mum remembers making breakfast for the editorial team because they used to go, go out to see the magazine on press but need somewhere for breakfast. And so she'd have all of these really fascinating characters turning up for, uh, you know, bacon and eggs and so on. Um, and again, you know, I think dad was getting on great, but one of his colleagues said, you know, you should really spread your wings. And so he took a job at a company uh, in a town called Lee. Uh, the firm is called Lancashire Colour Printers. And um, it was sort of halfway in between Manchester and Liverpool. Um, we... Uh, I think we moved into a bungalow, which was just down the road from the printers. Then we, you know, mum and dad bought a bigger semi-detached uh, house uh, just outside of the town of Lee. And then dad met some fellas at uh, Lancashire Colour Printers. They broke off to form their own company, the name of which will give you a sense of which time period they set up in. It was called News Photo Typesetting Services in the new town of Skelmersdale which I think at the time was the only place in Britain that had been designed without pavements. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's how we, I, wound up in Manchester and, uh, you know, the family's been, um, been there ever since. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of an interesting journey, you know. But, yeah, my dad's, uh, my dad's kind of craft as a compositor was a thing that gradually brought us further south. I think we've been mentioning someone who also has a Lee connection, uh, in the next but one question. So, oh, excellent. Someone, someone you ended up working with, funnily enough. Mm. Uh, but tell us about the London 
the move to London, what was then called the Spastics Society. Tell yeah. me about that, because that was uh, your first big rebrand role, wasn't it? It was. So, um, you know, having gone back to Manchester from the, the, the disaster of, um, of Norwich, um, I saw the role advertised for the Spastic Society. It was essentially a graphic design role. I think I'd built up enough of a portfolio at that point to feel reasonably confident about going for the job. And um, uh, Nigel Tuckett, who was the, the guy that hired me, I, I think I would probably describe as my first true professional mentor, um, was a fantastic uh, boss, gave me a lot of freedom in the role. And a lot of the work we did for the Spastic Society was really campaigning focused. So it was um, creating materials that helped to uh, change the nature of uh, the rights of people with uh, disabilities and particularly cerebral palsy. And so we did work on the access to polling stations, equal rights. It was a really um, uh, fantastic uh, organization that had a lot of energy uh, to really transform the lives of people with disabilities generally and people with cerebral palsy in particular. And after I think I've been there three or four years, um, there was a much more pressure to move away from the name the spastic society into something that had uh, less association with that word which had become um you know a, a really negative association um and into something uh, that could have a broader remit and so the decision to change the branding was taken um, nigel and i and the comms team worked with a, an agency called fishburn hedges who did a lot of the sort of development work, but we, we worked really as a partnership and the, you know, the responsibility of getting that right was immense because fundraising was critical to the organization and changing to something that created a new energy around its work was really important. So yeah, that was, um, that was a surprisingly uh, significant thing to be involved in at that stage in my career but I, I learned a huge amount and as I say you know Nigel took it uh, was was tremendous because he just gave me so much flexibility and freedom to get involved at the sort of highest level of the conversations around the strategy the design and so on so yeah it was uh, it was a fantastic uh, fantastic role yeah well, here comes the Lee connection because oh. um, Eric, Eric Speakerman didn't he marry is, is his wife from Lee his his uh, his ex wife Joan. That's right. From Leeds. Yeah. No, but whenever he spoke about Manchester, it was always specifically Lee. That's right. That's right. Was, you know. Um, but tell us about the transition from being a designer, um, working with Eric Speakerman directly uh, at Meta, into becoming more of a writer and strategist. How does that? How did that happen? Yeah. So working with eventually working with the typographic circle, which I thoroughly enjoyed and working on the magazine, which, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to at some point, um, put me in contact with people like Tim Fendley and Robin Richmond, who were the, the, the uh, guys that had set up union design, which was transitioning to meta design London. And I'd been doing three days a week at scope and two days a week at uh, union slash Meta Design London, and eventually that became unworkable, and so I went full time at Meta Design London. And um, 
you know, the truth of it was that I still harbored some sort of naive idea that I could be a really great graphic designer. Um, but when I was sat in the studio environment with Tim, Robin, you know, Ben, Sam, all of the other guys, I realized I was not even close to the way that they thought about design. And to his credit, Robin Richmond took me to one side one day and said, look, he said, um, the thing that you do that we really need and which I'm not sure we can do uh, in the studio right now is, is actually right. It's, it's talk about our work. It's create content for our work. It is to think about the way that we present ourselves, our proposals, even our invoices. Every aspect of the written word uh, is something that you, I think, could really help us with. So this could be the point. I mean, I didn't really realize it at the time, but in essence, Robin did me a, um, his observation of the way I worked and what I could do. And, and to be frank, you know, the value I could add to that business was writing. And so, um, you know, it was, it didn't really take very long. I just focused immediately on the, on the writing side of things. And this is for a company, uh, you know, Meta Design's passion for language and their sense of the importance of language in branding was, it made it the perfect environment because I had to become very, very good, very quickly. You know, you had to be very certain about your choice of words. You had to be really precise. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people will know the degree to which um, Eric Speakerman has the most precise sense of the English language. He's, he's a, you know, extremely smart guy. But in that environment, it was brilliant to get started as a writer and strategist with a sense of uh, every single word being critically important, getting getting rid of all of the stuff that didn't matter and just being very, very focused. So it was truly transformational, I think, in, in my professional life. And in, in all honesty, I think I've been happier as a result because there are lots and lots of truly great designers. Everyone who worked at Meta Design at that time was exceptional, but there were very few, a handful of people in design that could write. And so um, that, I think that, that made me valuable um, and gave me a, a kind of, not, not a niche as such, but uh, it gave me a real sense of purpose in terms of what I could do best. So, yeah, it was a really important phase, I think. It's interesting because obviously you then kicked on, and we're not going to talk too much about it now, but just to make a comment, you then kicked on to be executive creative director at several large agencies. You know, you can, so you can see how, it, I think for our people listening to the podcast, you can see how you kind of, you start somewhere, you go on a creative journey, and then there's yeah. those sort of key moments where you sort of really elevate it in terms of your skills, your mindset, your approach, and the career that's come from it is absolutely phenomenal. Well, you know, to just sorry, Dan, to butt in there, but, you know, sparing his blushes, you know, Phil um, was brilliant at saying, look, I almost when I joined Real Time, again, I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but, you know, I don't know what you're going to do. I just know you're going to be great at it. And I've been very fortunate to meet a handful of people that have kind of identified what it is I could do for them. I mean, you know, and I'm not going to be, um, there's no false modesty. I think I'm good at what I do, but I think it's incredibly important to be around people that can see the possibilities that you may not yourself have necessarily realized. And I think um, that's incredibly important to be with people that have a, a sort of 
a sense of positivity about what your creative potential is. Yeah. Sorry, Dan, I, I interrupted. No, no, that's absolutely brilliant. It was, it was just a comment, really, because I think, you know, for so many people that may be younger in their career, you kind of, particularly in a creative industry, you, you sometimes meander sideways or you, you kind of, it's quite a snaky path. It's not a straight path, is it? It's no. not a straight line off. And I think just to, to listen to your story and see where you've ended up. And Enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. Something I'm going to pick up on now is actually the typographic circle. Yes. How did you get involved with that? And <laughs> I believe you were chairman in the end, and you've got a whole a whole sort of part of your career involved there as well. So tell us a little bit about that. Right. Um, so, Phil, I'm going to get some of this wrong, Phil, so by all means correct me. But, you know, Phil had been involved with the typographic circle and had been uh, elected chairman. And I think one of the things he was quite keen to do was to bring some new faces to the committee so that it, it got a, a sort of a, a boost of energy, I guess. And um, by, you know, I mean, it, it goes back to Phil doing a talk at Manchester Poly, me having the front to sneak into the talk, which essentially was for the graphic design course, and then just bowl up to him at the end and say, have you got a card? He gave me a card and, and said, you know, stay in touch sending him the magazine that I was doing, um, you know, showed him, I think, that I could write. And I think when he joined the committee, uh, he thought, let's, let's get Patrick involved because, you know, there was a magazine, there were lots of other things to do. He knew I was passionate about typography. And so the, the night of the official election to the Typographic Circle Committee, I think there was probably a dozen of us wound up in Barcelona, which was on uh, Old Compton Street. I remember that. And at some point I was dancing with a, a church candle on my forehead <laughs> uh, with a, a few of what might now be described as the kind of, um, you know, the, some of the more significant figures in, in, in design of the uh, late 20th, early 21st century. Anyway, um, I ruined a very nice silk tie, not surprisingly, because the candle was flickering. Um, but no, the typographic circle was was fantastic because the, the, the magazine was a labour of love for everyone involved with it. And that was mostly, uh, you know, Meta Design London, uh, people like Simon Esterson, who came in to edit the magazine with us. Um, it put us all in contact with, you know, fascinating people um, doing a magazine that was shared with our, our peers. So it was, um, you know, a responsibility, but also a real joy, you know, mostly late nights during the week or Sundays with uh, when Shoreditch had really one bar and one cafe. These were, you know, the, the early days of the East of London. Anyway, over time, uh, I think Phil was, you know, getting busier with, uh, with his business and uh, gradually just transitioned me uh, into the, the position of chairman. I mean, it had to be officially voted, of course, but... Um, you know, it was a, a fantastic opportunity. And I think it was one of those things where you, you get back as much as you put in. So, you know, the, the committee worked extremely hard to find really interesting speakers, you know, find venues in the centre of town. We had great sponsorship from people like GF Smith. The, the whole thing just required a lot of uh, effort and attention from, from the committee. But for all of us, it just put us into new and interesting environments. We did conferences in partnership with the type directors club in new york so we did a sort of um, 
uh, a twinning scheme. You know, designers from the UK would go to New York and speak and vice versa. Um, yeah, it was, it was a, a lot of work, a lot of effort, but the rewards of it were huge. Um, you know, sometimes selfishly, you got to spend time with people who you uh, admired and respected. And of course, that's, that's kind of the payback from all of the effort and the hours that went into it. Oh, brilliant. I've got a question because leading on from that, you actually started your own organization for designers. And yeah. that became quite a big deal. So just tell us a little bit about that. I would, I would say um, if, if you were to ask me to list the things that I'm proudest of professionally, um, four designers would be, would be very close to the top. So the, the, the sort of short-potted history of it is that Ike Grada, uh, the International Council of Design, had held a spring seminar in London since 1973, and it was chaired by um, a designer called F.H.K. Henryan. And um, the student seminar happened, I think, every February or March, uh, usually at the Odeon Leicester Square uh, or at the one at the end of um, Oxford Street. And it was hundreds of student designers, hundreds, at all stages of their uh, development, first year, second year into third year. Um, when Henry uh, died in 1990, um, the responsibility of organising the conference fell to Alan Fletcher, and then Alan Fletcher passed that on to Mervyn Kalansky. And in 1999, I'm not entirely sure the reason why, but, you know, Ike Grada, I think, stepped away from the London Spring Seminar. I think it moved its headquarters uh, from London to uh, Brussels. And um, Linda Ralph Knight, uh, the uh, former editor of Design Week, had also been involved at Alan Fletcher's request. So at this point where there was a chance the seminar wasn't going to take place, um, she uh, got in touch with me and uh, Quentin Newark, designer Quentin Newark, who had worked with Alan Fletcher at Pentagram, and asked if we might be interested to help move things forward. The organisers, European Study Tours, had hundreds of students expecting to come to London for the spring seminar to listen to designers talk about their work. And so we had to quickly get uh, the speakers together, which was generally phoning up four friends and saying are you free on february the 20th and um over time uh, what what used to happen is i would introduce linda and linda would introduce the speakers and one day linda just said this is ridiculous patrick you know why are you introducing me and i'm introducing them why don't you just get on with it uh, you know and it was again it's one of those moments where you think okay <laughs> but basically um over 20 years up until 2019, we've had the most amazing roster of speakers. We've done it in London and in New York. We, I mean, essentially the conference for me was about um, designers talking about the reality of life in the creative profession. So lots of conferences that you could attend where people showed the most sensational work and it was, you know, tremendously exciting stuff. But for students who are about to set out on their career, in the creative profession what's it really like you know what's it like when you have to put your book together for an interview what's it like when your work gets rejected for the first time what's it like when the ideas run dry these are problems that if they're honest most creative people have faced and i wanted it to be the principle of four designers that students would leave with a really clear idea of how 
privileged it is to be part of the creative profession or what a privilege it is i should say but also it can be tough it can be hard work it can be demanding it can be a real um struggle sometimes and how have the people who've achieved you know great things in that career done it and to get the sort of the the, the truth of it all so that was the the real the heart of it um you know last couple of years we've had um Carol Whitworth has spoken, who's a, a mutual friend, I think. She was absolutely brilliant. She played a couple of songs on a ukulele, of course. Carol doesn't know it yet, but she is definitely going to be one of the people we're interviewing. Yeah, I mean, she, she'd be the absolute antidote to me. So, yeah, you definitely need to get her on. Uh, but we had, you know, Kath Tudbull, who is uh, exec CD at Super Union. Um, Joanna Davis, who's at Zach Agency. Jim Sutherland. Really wonderful folk being very generous and helping students sort of get a real sense for what's what's the career they're looking to choose going to be like. So yeah, I mean, a, a long answer, but you know, Dan, it's it's really interesting to have the chance. You know, thousands of students have been to it, and all of them, I, I hope, would have had a moment where something was unlocked, or or, or something inspired them, or, or something made them think. Either, yep, this is it. I am fully into it fully committed but in some cases you know maybe this isn't the career for me and i think sometimes that's as important as knowing it's the perfect career so it's been a it's been a privilege how it moves forward given what's happened this year we're not sure we're looking at how we might be able to change things but um for the 20 years so far it's been an absolute privilege to be involved yeah i'm going to ask you one more question before i let dan finish this up because okay it's incredibly interesting this really is but um you accidentally found yourself living in new york for three years <laughs> california for three years because i think they they came out of reasons that weren't part of a master plan yes just tell us what what it was like working overseas particularly in those two big cities and could you ever f- see yourself living there yes um <sighs> I mean, there were, there were two fantastic opportunities and, you know, I have an inordinately talented uh, wife, Anita, and um, the, the New York was because uh, the business Anita worked for wanted to establish an operation in New York and, and they asked her to go and set it up. And what was initially a six-month um, engagement turned into three years. So we were living just off Fifth Avenue, um, it was, uh, I always think New York is a bit of Europe that went missing because it's, it's just the most incredibly energetic, vibrant, intense place. And, and the other thing about New York, which I quickly discovered is New York will not come and find you. You have to, you have to step into New York. You have to show that you're there. You have to get involved with things. So the work I was doing there was all, I mean, 95% with clients back in the UK, and um, in, in a sense, not so different to the current experience because I was doing all of my meetings, presentations and, you know, work in progress uh, stuff over Skype. And um, it, was, it was really interesting. New York was really interesting. I, I, one of the most significant projects I did while I was there was working with Made Thought on the, um, the rebranding of GF Smith. And so when you get stuck into a project like that which has just got the most fantastic reach and scope it um 
almost not being in in the UK wasn't an impediment to doing that work and loved working with them and really proud of the work that we did and then you know came back to the UK I think probably for about 18 months and then a similar opportunity um, came up Anita was asked to set up uh, a a new operation for her business out in California and um, you know it was it was just the most fantastic opportunity the west coast is radically different to the east coast we arrived four days before the 2016 presidential election so we arrived in a very different um at what was about to become a very different america um but you know it was it was fascinating in that I was still working with essentially the same clients, but that additional five or six hours made, you know, what I would find is I would be briefed by teams in the UK who were just about to go home and I was just about to make my morning coffee. And so as it, as it turned out, California was a great place to be because I'd be working all day and essentially posting copy ready for the following morning in the UK. So actually it worked well. Um, I think, those were two tremendously uh, important moments in, in, in my life, in, in our lives. Um, I'm not sure. I think it feels, it feels good to be home. Mm-hmm. Um, certain things happen in life where you, 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 are, you quickly realize how far away from home you are. And I think the West Coast was, was challenging from that point of view. And we also made sure that we did all the things we, we didn't want to have any regrets when we left New York or California to say, oh, I wish we had, you know, done, gone to Yosemite, gone to the Grand Canyon. We, we made sure we made the very best use of our time there. I mean, you know, Anita was working incredibly hard, but we, we, we made it our business to get the most out of being there that we possibly could. But I'm, I'm really happy to be back in the UK. It's where family is. It's where all of our uh, friends are. We have very good connections still in the States, but... It's nice to be here. Uh, we're glad you're home. <laughs> what an incredible career, Patrick. I'm really, really interested to hear. Now, I know that Phil, Phil's been around, you know, in the background and the foreground at different points of your career, but just tell me about the night that uh, Phil met George Best. Dan, honestly, I, I have... Okay, so it was... Uh, Phil, I'm going to get the birthday wrong. It was a significant birthday, I think. And uh, we were at real time. And... And the folk at real time had organized for George Best to um, come to the drinks that had been organized for Phil's birthday. Phil didn't know anything about this. And um, so I, I forget the name of the bar, Phil, I'm afraid. Lupo's. But anyway, Lupo's, that's it. So there's, you know, there's a ton of us in Lupo's. We'd already been there a couple of hours. Um, Phil was holding court at the bar. And um, all of a sudden in the doorway and you know a good number of us knew that George Best would be arriving at some point there is George and Alex Best and it's the truly it's the first and perhaps the only time I've ever seen Phil speechless (laughs) because it was you know this is I know that Dennis Law is also one of Phil's great heroes but you know George Best is truly a legend and to see Phil's entire state of being change in a second when he saw 
George Best walk in that room. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget it. But equally, every other, um, I mean, almost everyone in that entire place, but especially the blokes that had seen George Best play, and you truly understood what, what George Best stood for as a footballer. It was, it was like they all became... 12 years old again. It was, it was fantastic. But, you know, he, uh, George Best stayed around, I think, for much longer than any of us expected, had a long conversation with Phil, signed stuff. I mean, he was, he was brilliant. But, yeah, in that moment, I, I saw Phil back in Manchester watching George Best play. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was just a fantastic, fantastic moment. Phil speechless. The one and only time. <laughs> there we go. You heard, it. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. It was one time and only time that Phil was beaten. That's it. There we go. So just, just as we're kind of uh, winding down, Patrick, life's been tough over the last few months for very obvious reasons. And, you know, creatives and strategists like yourself, you know, you've you got incredibly sort of uh, different ways of thinking. Um, you know, dare I say it, sometimes high standards. What was the last thing that you looked at and you thought, do you know what? That's truly wonderful. Oh, okay. Um, at the weekend, at the risk of making this sort of out of date quite quickly, but at the weekend we went to see our dearest friends and we are very fortunate um, to be goddaughter to their daughter. And, um, Anita buys incredibly thoughtful gifts and she'd bought our goddaughter a story. Um, I think they're called story cards um, from uh, Magma. And so uh, she presented um, uh, this, uh, this gift and uh, our goddaughter just kind of ripped it open and, and walked away. So we're just having coffee before we, before we left. And I, it, it couldn't have been more than two minutes later our goddaughter walks back in the room and said, follow me. So we follow her into the playroom and on the floor across the entire width of the room are story cards that have been joined together. And she proceeded to tell us a story that she had created between receiving this, receiving this set of story cards and us finishing our coffee. It was probably three, three four minutes. And she told us a story about a princess and a witch and a forest and a castle. If you ask me, what was what was the one that was wonderful? Oh, that was really wonderful. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that's really special. <laughs> brilliant. There we go. The next generation of creatives and storytellers, right? You there. got it. You got it. Yeah. There we go. Fantastic. Well, Patrick, you know, last question from me, and it's it's a question we ask all of our guests. You know, half because as an agency, our mission is to take complex things and make them wonderfully simple, but half because life is complex. Yeah. Sometimes it gets more complex. So what was, what's one thing in life or one of life's complexities that you would like to see made simpler? Right. I, I'm going to go back to, I, I read something this morning, funnily enough. I'm going to go back to scope and um, people with disabilities. I read a story this morning. Uh, it was written by Molly Long. Uh, for Design Week, and it was about is about uh, a designer who has cerebral palsy and is trying to find ways to embrace people with disabilities in the design of things that people with disabilities have to use every day. And 
she's created a couple of things that are just so, they look so small, so insignificant. And yet in terms of giving people with disabilities independence, they're, they're transformational. And one of the things is she's created a dog tag zip puller which is designed to allow people who may not find it that easy to, you know, zip up a jacket uh, to, to do that themselves. Uh, she's, she's designed a, um, a device that helps people uh, fasten buttons on a, on a shirt. You know, these are inconsequential things to, to the majority of people, but to someone with a disability, these things are, transformational give give them a sense of independence really really change you know the way they feel about uh, themselves and i just thought that's that's a complex problem not for mankind but for some people that is close to moving towards being solved in a way that's just so elegant so smart and and so simple and it's things it's things like that i'd love to see people who need the simplest kinds of support get it by working together with people who have the means of uh, generating these things with the people who can express the need for them and explain the why and the difference it'll make. So, uh, you know, somewhat serious answer perhaps, but I, I just read that story and I thought that is absolutely astounding and yet so simple how, how big a change that could make to, to lots and lots of people. No, that's brilliant. Really, really good. And Patrick, we haven't even spoken about the DNAD pencil. We haven't spoken about some of your uh, your career at EHS Real Time, for example, or some of the campaigns you worked on and some of the clients you worked with. There's lots of different people that you've interviewed over the uh, over the years, your various guises, and I, I kind of I kind of feel like we could have had another hour long conversation about some of those things. But just from my perspective, thank you so much for sharing the insights and your career and your life. I think the people listening whichever stage of their creative journey or digital journey they're on, just to be able to listen to the wisdom and the insights in that and the values that come across so clearly have been really, really good. So I've, I've enjoyed myself. How about you, Phil? I find it really boring, personally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Patrick, uh, getting Patrick to talk about himself is quite difficult because right. it's usually it's everybody else. That he talks about and uh, it's an amazing story i'm i'm really chuffed and uh, also he's mentioned anita several times and anita is one of those things that came up out of his career change when we merged two agencies anita worked for one of the agencies and patrick worked for for our agency in that merger that they got to know each other and now their life is all these exciting things that happen. Yeah. And that, that, that is, that is truly the best thing that's ever happened to me. But yeah. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed this uh, guys. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for tuning in to the wonderful people podcast. This podcast is brought to you by wonderful creative agency. Find out more at the wonderful.co.uk.